Well, with your Bible open this morning to the Old Testament and to the book of the Song of Songs, I want to read from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 1, which is actually still a verse in chapter 1, just a misplaced chapter heading. And uh, so we shall read from God's Word in just a moment. Uh, Following the introduction, I have two thoughts. Number one, what's the use in my preaching this? He already did it. Uh, Number two, um, I would certainly want to take rhetoric with him. Uh, Good night. What rhetoric? And if you add honesty to it, uh, it would really be remarkable. Well, anyway, um, I thank you for the introduction. my brother, and as we look today at uh, the Song of Solomon, I want to call your attention to the text. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is an ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. And the title of the message today comes from that text, which is Don't Waste a Kiss. And so that is our title for today. Well, the Shulamith has spoken, and now there is a chorus. And the chorus are the daughters of Jerusalem, and they speak and say, We will run after you. And again, the Shulamith speaks, and she says, The king has brought me into his chambers. And then the daughters of Jerusalem once again sing together, We will be glad and rejoice with you. We will remember your love more than wine. Now the Shulamith speaks again, Rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sin has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock? Where do you make, where do you rest at noon? For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, the beloved speaks, Solomon speaking here, if you do not know, O uh, fairest among women, uh, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to a filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments and your neck with chains of gold. And then the daughters of Jerusalem sing one more time, We will make your ornaments of gold with studs of silver. And while the king is at his table, the Shulamith says, My spikenard sends forth its fragrance, and a bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Angedi. And then Solomon speaks one more time. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. And Shulamite answers back, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. 
Also our bed is green, and the beams of the house are cedar, and our rafters of fir. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. The Song of Songs is actually the title of the book. It goes in most of your volumes as the Song of Solomon, but it is Shir Hasharim, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. In his magisterial volume on the Song of Songs, Marvin Pope says this, quote, No composition of comparable size in the world of literature has provoked and inspired such a volume and variety of comment and interpretation as the biblical Song of Songs. In adding to this already bloated body of literature, no claim is made that the present study supplies a master key to the inner sanctum of the mysteries of Solomon's superb song, which the savant Seda long ago likened unto a lock for which the key had been lost, end of quote. The book is unquestionably the most obscure of all the books of the Bible. People often say to me, well, uh, we would read the Revelation, but it's just too difficult to understand. When they tell me that, I know that they have read neither Ecclesiastes nor the Song of of Songs. When you come to a book like this, there are people who believe that it should not even be in the Bible. A matter of fact, uh, uh, those are fairly common. Marcion resisted this book as being hopelessly secular. Hippolytus, around 200, and shortly after him, um, Origen, all suggested that the book did have some value. As a matter of fact, Origen wrote only 10 volumes on, uh, of exposition on the song. But they suggested that the book had no value as a love poem. As a matter of fact, it was uh, beneath the value of the Bible, to speak of it as a love poem. And so they insisted that there be an allegorical translation or understanding of it. Now, there are endless methods of approaching the Song of Solomon, probably almost as many as there are authors. But when it comes right down to it, it is one of two things. It is either an allegory about Christ and the church, or else it is a example of a love poem written by Solomon, one of the two. Now, in a moment, I will give you uh, something a bit different, but for the time being, it is one of the two things. Jerome came along, living uh, about 400, and he also chose to do uh, an allegory of this book. But that was not universal, because there were always people who saw it as straightforward, who were literal interpreters of God's Word, and who, as they read the people who found an allegory in it, became aware of the fact that no two agreed on what the allegory meant. Now, that's a problem if you're going to allegorize it. And even the great Spurgeon made that same mistake, and he, too, chose for an allegorical interpretation. Theodore Mopsuesta, at the end of the fourth century, 
or wrote that it was to be taken literally and was to be a straightforward expression of the glories of a love of a man for a woman. Now, I'm going to argue today that there is some crossover in those views. I'm going to argue for what I call a literal analogous view of the song. It is true that the Song of Solomon is a love poem. And no question about that. It is literal in its expression. It is beautiful. It is designed to do approximately six things. Number one, it focuses on the nobility, even the sacredness of the sexual intimacy that God created for marriage. It is, first of all, the case that our society lost its understanding of the sacred nature of sexual intimacy. The loss of that sacred nature of it has led to all of the other things that have transpired, including, uh, but not being limited to, homosexuality. All the other expressions that have come about came to begin with, with the loss of an understanding of the sacredness and nobility. Remember, God created everything. And until man perverted it, everything that God created was said to be very good. Sexual intimacy, or more to be expressed in this, song, in this song, just intimacy was something that God created and was very good. Number two, human intimacy established a physical union as an, illustri- as an illustration of a union with God and Christ. And most people never think about it that kind of a way. But I want to urge you today to see the intimacy that exists between a man and a woman as an expression of the intimacy that exists between God and a man. Because you see, on the principles that God laid out, there should be only one man for one woman for life. And what they know of each other and experience of each other is absolutely alien to any other human being on the face of the globe. And so they know each other as no others are known. Yeah, that's true of God. God's relationship to you is unique. Oh, it's true that we're certainly born again. Each of us has experienced a new birth and that we have in common. But how God walks through the valleys of life with each of you is totally unique, totally different. The relationship that he has with every one of you. And so the intimacy of human love imitates that. Third, The importance of the husband and wife relationship is stated in the book. Now, there are three groups of people here this morning, essentially, and this book is addressed to all three of you. Number one, it is addressed to those who are married. And this book tells you how it is to have a successful and fully fulfilling marriage. Secondly, there are those of you who are not yet married. This book will save you from a thousand wrong turns. It will take you in a way in your romantic life 
that will cause it to be a blessing and not a curse. But the choice is yours. Third, there are some who are celibate. And if God has given you the gift of celibacy, remember it is a spiritual gift according to 1 Corinthians 7, 7. And God may have given you that gift. You say, well, what, what need have I to do with this? Well, part of the thing that the Apostle Paul does so very, very well is to counsel us in our marital needs, even though he himself was not married. So though you are celibate, nevertheless, this is vital information. So what I'm telling you is nobody comes out from under the specter of this book. You have to get it and understand it. In the book we will discover in the fourth place the characteristics of both men and women. Both positively and negatively. We'll see all of those in the book. Number five, we will observe the shipwreck of life when intimacy is wrongly employed. We see that especially in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the song and in the life of Solomon himself. And finally, the enduring nature of real love. Not sloppy, syrupy sentimentalism, but real love is found in this book. So with that in mind, look at what Shir Hasharim has to say. Well, it purports to be written by Solomon. And most of the Jewish interpreters across the years, and until relatively recent years, most of the Christian interpreters saw it that way. Matter of fact, the three books that are accredited to Solomon, Song Solomon or Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes represented three phases in the life of Solomon. What you have in the Song of Songs is an introduction to the early days of Solomon's life. He does not have yet 700 wives and 300 concubines and 1,000 mother-in-laws. Instead, he has but one great love in his life. And the book of Proverbs is written in his middle age as he's in the middle of his kingdom years and he has learned a great deal of wisdom. And by the time we get to Ecclesiastes, he's an old man and he's writing from the viewpoint and perspective of one who's experienced just about everything and he's found most of it to be bankrupt. So we're looking at an early period in the life of Solomon. He reigns from 970 or 971 to 931 B.C. And somewhere toward the early part of that reign, Solomon wrote this magnificent treatise, which we now read. Well, what does he say? The Shunammite speaks first. She is from Shunem. And uh, there you have a picture of Shunem. And if you will look, it is in the middle of the Jezreel Valley. Shunem, located right there in the middle of the Jezreel Valley, uh, is uh, uh, strategically located, but in the country. Today there's a big city there, but it was not so. That was in the country, and the Shulamite, or the Shunammite, was from that area just to the south and to the west of the Sea of Galilee. The Shulamite speaks up, and she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. 
Now, you probably haven't thought too much about kissing. Uh, kissing is not something that is usually discussed on Sunday morning. And uh, yet the Bible has a great deal about kissing. Uh, for example, there are at least three kinds of kisses that are clearly to be found in the Bible. First of all, there is the brotherly love, the kiss of brotherly love. We're told again and again in the New Testament, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, what kind of a kiss is a holy kiss? I will now demonstrate no, that you to you. <laughs> Security! No! <laughs> That's the greatest terror I ever saw in his eyes. That is a holy kiss. I think you will agree there's nothing particularly sensual about it. Um, I think you will understand that it is an expression of gratitude to God and appreciation for that person, even though he may not have appreciated it in this case. <laughs> However, there's another kind of kiss in the Bible that is also very important. And that's the kind of kiss that Solomon appeals to here. And um, that is to be reserved for one person only. Uh -huh. You will note that I did not approach Dr. Day in the same fashion. <laughs> there is a third kind of kiss, and that's the kiss of betrayal. It was the kiss of Judas when he betrayed our Lord. I, I'm going to suggest something to you young people that you may want to keep in mind. Did you know that a kiss, which is a special form of expression of love and gratitude for someone, when it is a wasted kiss, it is a kiss of betrayal. To kiss someone in the fashion that I have just done with my sweetheart when there is no real expression of deep love is, in fact, a kiss of betrayal. Now, now I'm not a dweller of dark ages, so I know that you're going to do some of the experimentation on this, but I want to actually urge you to think about what you're doing. And if you preserve that kiss... For that one that you love greatly, it will be meaningful to you. Um, probably she has forgotten, but I've not forgotten the first time I kissed her. I remember it as though it were yesterday. And I was only 16 years old at the time. And uh, yet, I remember it as though yesterday, one of the most thrilling things that ever happened to me. I couldn't believe she let me do it. And uh, so it, it was almost unthinkable 
Well, the Shulamite says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. You know why it's better than wine? It doesn't have any residual after effect. And so it is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your ointment, your ointment, your name is an ointment poured forth. Just the name Solomon was an ointment poured forth and made her heart rejoice. You know, when you're in love with somebody, deeply in love, did you know even their name becomes precious to you? As an ointment poured forth. Well, we got to hurry along. Now there are three uh, who are speaking in the song. There is Solomon, who speaks approximately a third of the time. There is the Shulamith, who speaks almost two-thirds of the time. And there is a chorus of ladies from the chambers of the king. And uh, so they speak up and say, we're going to run after you and see what's going to happen in all this. And she says, the Shulamith says, oh, the king has brought me into his chambers. Now already you saw Shunem, it's in the country. She's a country girl. All of a sudden she is ushered in to the very chambers of King Solomon. Because you need to keep in mind something. When you think of David as king over Israel, and when you think of Solomon as king over Israel, if you're thinking in your mind of Henry VIII, get it out of your mind. These were shepherd kings. And it is true that Solomon built many, many things and ruled over the largest expanse of the kingdom in all of history, but he was always a shepherd king. And we're going to see in the book the extent to which he is actually a country boy. We're going to watch it again and again. And so I think it is actually possible to identify the Shulamith more, more specifically. Now, in the Bible, in the song, she is only referred to as the Shulamite. Who is she exactly? In 1 Kings chapter 1, we are told that David has become an old man. And try as they may, they couldn't keep him warm. And so they found a lovely young woman, verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Kings, uh, a lovely woman throughout all of Israel, and they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. Doesn't mean he didn't know her acquaintance, it means that he did not know her sexually. And then Adonijah, the son of Hagith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And one of the first things that Adonijah did in chapter 2 is he approached Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, when King David had died. And he said, I have only one favor to ask of you. And she said, tell me what that is. And he said, ask Abishag to be given to me as a wife. She had never known David. She simply was there to try to keep him warm. And so he says, give me Abishag. And his mother Bathsheba thought, that's 
the legitimate express, uh, a legitimate expression. So she comes to Solomon and she asks him, but Solomon has an unexpected reaction. Why do you ask Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? Why don't you ask for him the kingdom also? For he is my older brother, and for him and for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. And the result of all this was that Adonijah was treated as a felon and was killed for his trouble. What made, they, what made Solomon so upset about this? Why did he get pushed out of shape that much about Abishag. I believe that though it is not widely accepted that she may very well have been the Shunammite that is in question here. Solomon probably never knew her until she was brought in to take care of David in his old age and then he discovered her rather quickly. In fact, we're going to find out something about her now because she says uh, in verse 4 and 5, rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar. And you'll shortly see them there. There are the tents of Kedar. Find them all over the Holy Land, the black goat hair tent. And she says, I'm like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. And she goes ahead and explains how that happened. My mother's sons were angry with me, apparently her brothers, and they made me a keeper of the vineyard. But she says, my own vineyard I have not kept. She was a poor country girl. She had spent all the time out in the vineyards. And so her own vineyard, she had not kept. You see the beauty of the vineyard there. But she says, my vineyard have I not kept. Her beauty was a raw, arresting beauty. There was just something about her that you couldn't take your eyes off. She was very different from the ladies of the court. The ladies of the court were carefully prepared and, and uh, beautifully adorned, but not the Shulamith. She just was a case of God's created natural beauty. And she was tanned, and she noticed the difference between herself and the women of the court who were not outdoors very much. And she was a little bit inhibited by that. And she says, my own vineyard have I not kept. And then she says, but you brought me into your chamber, but you don't stay there. You go out. Tell me, O oh, you whom I love, where you feed your flock. I'd like to come and find you where you rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils her face? When a woman went out oftentimes in those days uh, into the out of doors, she would veil herself until she found her own family. But she says, why should I be like that? Tell me where you are. And Solomon answers back, you do not know, O fairest of women, just follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats besides the shepherd's tent. I have compared you, my love, to a filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Oh, dear. How would you like to be out on a date with a young man? And he said, you remind me of a horse. You're so pretty. <laughs> well, that's what he said, but... What's pretty to 
a woman may not be pretty to a man. That's why all the gender confusion doesn't make any sense. But Solomon's going to talk about what's beautiful to him. What's beautiful to him is, my goodness, what a magnificent horse. I, I mean, you could put all the beautiful china in the world on either side of him. I wouldn't notice it. Who cares about that? There's a good-looking horse right there, a filly from Pharaoh's chariots. Oh, my. And so when he thinks of the Shulamith, he thinks of the beauty of the horse. And my friend, you need to love, to learn to express yourself in romantic ways to your wife. Not just the same old thing all the time. Be a little creative. You want a girl to take an interest in you? Guys, learn to be sociable. And not only sociable, but to say things that will get their attention. Call them a horse. And so <laughs> I compare you to a filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments and your neck with chains of gold and the daughters of Jerusalem chime in and say, yes, we'll make you a beautiful ornament like that to wear around your neck. Now the Shulamith speaks again while the king is at his table. They've sat down to supper. And at the supper table, the king is at his table and she has carefully prepared herself. And so her spikenard, and there you see the spikenard plant, looks like uh, grapes, and, and that's the plant from which the nard is made, beautifully smelling um, uh, potion, and she has prepared herself, and she is working to entice her man. Now, ladies, just a word. Don't get carried away with makeup and all that kind of stuff, but do make preparation for your man. And a little perfume will go a long way. And some of you need to figure out where to find it and buy it and how to use it. And so it's a good thing. Well, while the king is at the table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance, but it also reminds her of something. And she says, a bundle of myrrh. And now we're going to get a look at myrrh. See, I, I know you don't know these plants, and I know you've never seen these animals, except maybe the horse that we're going to talk about. And, and so I want you to become aware of how rich the text is in the the. the flora and fauna of the, of the area. And so we're introduced to all of that here. And she says, well, my beloved is like that bundle of myrrh. He lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is like to me a cluster of henna blossoms. Isn't that a beautiful henna blossom? There. It's spectacular. The closer you get to it, the more different colors you see in it, but pre primarily a red and a white. And this is in the vineyards of Angedi. Angedi is a, a vertical oasis right along the side of the Dead Sea. When you start down the Dead Sea on the western side, you're going down, and all of a sudden you come to Angedi. It's an oasis right in the middle of the desert, 
right straight up the side of the mountain. What a beautiful place. It's where David hid out from Saul. It was one of his favorite places. He was there when Saul exposed himself in such a way as to be taken by David. But David said, I won't lift up my hand against God's anointed. And it was there at Ein Gedi where these beautiful blossoms grew. And as you walk up it, up toward the beautiful waterfall there in Ein Gedi, you will see the ibex playing around that are going to be mentioned later on in the book. And uh, these are beautiful mountain goats, incredibly beautiful things. But there was the henna blossom that is used widely even today in order to perfume and to prepare the body. So she says, it reminded me of a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Ein Gedi. Well, Solomon speaks again. Behold, you are fair, my love. And he uses both dodim and the additional word for love in the text, both in, used in chapter 1, indicating all aspects of love. You are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Now, again, you wouldn't have thought about that. But look at the eyes of the dove. Are they not beautiful? No wonder, he thought, as he looked at her, she had dove's eyes. Beautiful, sparkling dove's eyes. And so he uh, notes that of her. Behold, you are handsome, the Shulamith replies, my beloved, yet pleasant also. Also our bed is green. That is, uh, it is a time for us to be deeply in love together. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. And then she says something that we have attributed almost entirely to the Lord. She says, I am the Rose of Sharon. Oh, you weren't expecting that, were you? You're expecting a, a literal red rose. No, that's the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valley. And there is a beautiful lily of the valley, both characteristic of the Sharon plain. And she says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Now, nowhere in the Bible is that made as a comparison to our Lord. But now I'm going to tell you one more thing about the Song of Solomon. It is a beautiful love story between a man and a woman. And it should not be taken allegorically, but it should be taken analogously. Because the relationship of a husband and wife, in fact, the whole family relationship, father and son or child, we are brothers and sisters together in the kingdom of God. All of the family analogies are used to describe the relationship that exists between our God and an individual. So in our hymnody and in our singing, we often sing of Jesus as the rose of Sharon or the lily of the valley. Where do we get that? We got it right there from the song, but it doesn't have to do with Jesus there. And yet by extension... And analogously, it does have to do with Jesus. And so the songwriters were right to use it in that kind of a way. You see, the point that I hope you get 
from the Song of Solomon is that the love that is pictured between this man and this woman is unbelievably chaste. The descriptions are going to be frank, and I will tell you when we get to the frankest of those descriptions, although it should be fairly obvious, we'll get to those to be sure, but they are always chaste, and those who have said that they are somehow degraded because they're in the Bible miss the point entirely because every reference is made with great chastity and with great import. Watch them carefully as we go along. Because, you know, what the Bible is telling us is that love is never about getting. Love is always about giving. All through the song, we see two people who are eager to give. Now, yes, they do get in return. There's no question about that. But they are interested in giving. You see a woman, the Shulamith, giving herself to her husband. You see this man, Solomon, giving herself, himself to her country bride, to his country bride. This is Black History Month. I just wonder how many of you have ever heard of Harriet Tubman? I just ask, just for fun of it, how many of you know Harriet Tubman? Well, good, I am blessed. She was born about 1822, a slave in Maryland. Her mother was quite a girl. I would love to have met her mother. Her brother Moses was about to be taken away and sold to a farmer in Georgia, Mama decided that he wasn't going. And so she met the slaveholders at the door, and they said, we've come to get Moses. And she said, come on in, but the first one in, well, I'll split his head wide open. And they decided to leave Moses there. (laughs) I like the spirit of that mother. Well, uh, the owner died in 1849, and once again, the family was about to be split up. And, and um, Harriet said, quote, there was one of two things that I, had to, that I had a right to, liberty or death. Sound like somebody else, doesn't it? If I could not have one, I was determined to have the other. And so she escaped in October on the Underground Railroad, went to Pennsylvania, eventually ended up in Philadelphia, and as soon as she got there, Harriet Tubman determined that she was going to be a factor in freeing slaves. Thirteen missions she went on, freeing more than 70 slaves every time, placing her life at incredible risk. She had nothing but a percussion pistol pistol with her, and she defended herself well in that situation, as well as all of of the slaves that she rescued. She concluded at the end of her life, quote, I never ran a train off the tracks, and I never lost a passenger. Frederick Douglass wrote of her, God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been witness 
to your devotion to freedom and to your heroism. End of quote. You see, Harriet understood that love was giving. She was a very gracious Christian, loved the Lord with all of her heart, and understood her assignment in light of the Old Testament passages. But she understood that it wasn't important what you get out of life, it's important what you give in life. And young people, I want to say to you that nothing will change your dating life, nothing will change your church life, nothing will change your home life, nothing will change any part of your life like understanding that simple truth that life isn't about getting life. It's about giving. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful words of this gracious book. We pray, Lord, that as we study it in the weeks to come, that your will will be done in all aspects of our lives and that we shall become givers instead of those who seek to get. In Jesus' name, amen.